Tonight we want to look at this last message, something that has continued to be pressed upon my heart, my conscience over the years. I suppose the whole concept, the seed thought of what we'll look at tonight was first instilled in me many, many years ago. And even in this very hour, my resolve is this, and that is I have really sought to fight the good fight of faith in not taking any more ministry than my devotional life can accommodate. What does it profit if we preach well, if we wax eloquently in our speech, if we do our work in the local church admirably, perhaps exemplary, and yet it's all hollow It's nothing but surface and superficial, and at the last day, we find before us a pile of ashes. I believe the greatest thing that you can do before God and in your relationship with men is to withdraw from the press, withdraw from all the anxiousness and busyness of life to spend time alone and cultivate an intimate acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ through his spirit. So tonight, as pastors already told you, the title of the message is The Barrenness of Busyness. Years ago, I was sharing with Brother Kevin today, I called Dr. Vance Havner, who is a Southern Baptist itinerant. Of course, he's gone home to be with the Lord now. And I asked him if he would come and speak in a mini-conference that the theme was revival. And I said, I I would really appreciate you coming. Of course, I had read Havner's books. I had listened to his sermons. Uh, He ran in circles with A.W. Tozer and Leonard Ravenhill, highly esteemed among many believers around the world. And he had been an immense blessing to me. So I asked him if he would come and speak, and he said, well, I have it open, those dates open on my schedule, but he said, Brother Curran, he said, my platter is full and overrunning, but I will do this, I'll pray about it and get back with you in a few days. Well, i never forget going to my mailbox and pulling out a postcard from Vance Havner, and if he had said very simply, dear Brother Curran, Thank you for your invitation to come and speak in your conference. I regret that I'll not be able to come. And then this is what he said. I am learning I can do more by doing less. Sincerely, Vance Havner. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he recognized the importance of pacing himself By spending time alone with Christ, ensuring that he had the presence and the blessing of Christ's affirmation upon his life and his walk before he went out to minister truth to other people. And this is a good lesson for us to learn whether we're in the ministry or not, vocational ministry that is. All Christians are involved in the ministry. But understand tonight, whoever you may be, whether it's a businessman, a farmer, or a mother, a homeschool mom, 
I tell you, fellowship with Christ is essential if you expect to make the maximum impact upon your circle of influence. So tonight what I want to do is I want to begin, if you would take your Bibles, and we'll read the text in just a moment, but I want to begin with a satire, a satire on the ploys of the devil in this area. Turn with me and find your place there in the Song of Solomon and chapter number one. The Song of Solomon, chapter one. This is where we'll begin tonight and then we'll proceed by looking back over in the book of First Kings. Tonight, first of all, let me begin with this satire talking about Satan's attack in this area. The story goes of how Satan called for a worldwide convention. In his opening address to his evil spirits, he said, we can't keep true Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from having conservative values. But we can do something else. We can keep them from forming an intimate, abiding experience with Jesus Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church, read their Bibles, and have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time so that they do not have the time to have an intimate fellowship with Christ. This is what I want you to do, he said. Distract them from laying hold on Christ and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. The demon spirits said to the devil, how shall we do this? Keep them, now listen, keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend and spend and borrow and borrow. Convince the young wives that they have to work and the husbands that they have to work six days a week for 10 and 12 hours a day so they can afford their lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their family fragments, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they can't hear the still small voice. Entice them to play the stereo whenever they drive. Have them keep the TV, VCR. And there are CDs going constantly in their homes. See to it that every restaurant and store plays music constantly. This will jam their minds and break their fellowship with Christ. Pound their minds with news and weather 24 hours a day. Invade their time in the car with gaudy and glaring billboards. Flood their email and mailboxes with filth and junk mail to make them stumble. Distract them from social, distract them with social media interest. Even on vacation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their time away exhausted, 
disquieted and unprepared for the upcoming week. Don't let them go into nature. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, concerts, movies, and shopping malls instead. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, don't let them open up about anything deep or where they're struggling. Discourage them from enjoying Christ's presence when they are together. Instead, make them fearful of opening up and fill their time with small chatter, idle talk, frivolous laughter, and gossip so they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotions. Let them be involved in soul winning. Now listen to this. But crown their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek strength from Christ. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their family and health for the sake of the vision. It was quite a convention. At the end, the demonic spirits went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busy in life and pull them away from the one who is life. The narrative ends by asking this question. Have they been successful? You judge. Now we look at our text here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And I'm going to draw out one verse here. It's interesting, this little phrase in the verse. People like Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon went to great lengths to warn against the barrenness of business. The writer says in verse 6, Do not gaze at me because I am dark. Because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. And here's the phrase. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard have I not kept. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. The word... Vineyards is plural and implies the works organized and arranged by man. But the vineyard, singular, denoting a walk and fellowship with God, have I not kept. There are a number of fitting titles for the content of the message tonight. Certainly very appropriate to the text would be the neglected Vineyard or the neglected ministry. Probably a more appropriate title would be the sin of neglected communion. But perhaps even a more timely one that would be more suitable would be the tragedy of substituting work for worship. More relative to the text would be the flesh that you know not of. The flesh that you know not of. But I believe the most appropriate title would be what I've already introduced tonight. The barrenness of business. Honesty is a rare thing in the hour in which we live. 
Personally, I gravitate to transparent, honest people. Perhaps in the eyes of men, many of these men and women are not very popular. But I like people who are open and honest enough to relate where they really are spiritually. That's what I'm always inclined to do. If you know me very well, I'll be very transparently honest about my own glitches and struggles in my Christian life. But think about it tonight. If you fear this principle of being open, think about where we would be in this hour if it wasn't for men and women in the inspired volume, the Bible, that were broken and transparent enough to share their own struggles and their failures with us. Solomon was no exception. You see, bears his heart in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll look at later. Undoubtedly, and I remind you that the Song of Solomon was penned under inspiration by King Solomon. He could relate, no doubt, to the Shulamite woman here who said, They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. Let me ask you tonight, what is your vineyard or vineyards that prohibits your fellowship with God? Is it your job, television, computer, relationships with others, sports, personal ambitions, financial investment interests? Social media, your children or grandchildren. Some of these things are noble things that, yes, we need to be sensitive to. But it's possible to come so absorbed, brothers and sisters, that we neglect him. John Piper says, this is the key to real sanctification We must learn to fight sin by feeding faith with the knowledge of the gloriously irresistible God. But we've got to fight for it. As I mentioned a moment ago, Hudson Taylor, he wrote a little book. Talking about fellowship with Christ, it's entitled Union and Communion. Listen to what he had to say about the necessity of personal fellowship with our Lord. He's drawing from that phrase, they made me the keeper of the vineyards. He said, our attention is here drawn to a danger which is preeminently one of this day. The intense activity of our times may lead to zeal and service to the neglect of personal communion. Such neglect will not only lessen the value of the service, but tend to, listen now, tend to incapacitate us for the higher service. Let us never forget that what we are is more important than what we do. Did you catch that? Let us never forget that what we are is more important than what we do. 
And that all fruit born when not abiding in Christ must be fruit of the flesh and not the spirit. He says his wounds when healed often leave a scar. So the sin of neglected communion may be forgiven and yet the effect remain permanently. That's alarming. But our society, and within the context of our society, church people are overwhelmingly busy these days. There's a respectability in that, by the way. And certainly at times we are pressed to be busy. But I think we do ourselves a great disservice, and our family particularly a great disservice, if we get too busy for God. You remember the priority there in Luke chapter 10 that our Lord exalted in our eyes and our hearing. He's accommodated in the home of Mary and Martha. And you remember Martha is troubled about, she's encumbered, troubled about by much serving. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha's annoyed, bid her to come and help me, Lord. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, thou art troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. It's not soul winning. It's not missions. One thing is needful. And Mary had chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her, not only in this life, but also the life to come, is the implication. It's worship. Worship. The story is told of a lost spring. It had certain medicinal effects. Those who came and immersed themselves in this spring were healed of various diseases. It became very popular. In the course of time, the story goes, homes sprung up around the spring. Later, a hotel was built and then stores of all kinds. Eventually, this town grew into a city. Years began to pass. And then there came a day when visiting tourists would ask, by the way, where is the spring from which all this grew? And the town folk would rub their hands together and said, we don't know, but in the midst of all of our progress, we've lost the spring. And could it be in the hour in which we live, in the midst of all of our progress, whatever it may be, making a living, building an empire for ourselves, promoting a name for ourselves, doing the work even of ministry at times, we've lost him. It's possible. Oswald Chambers made this statement. Worshiping God is the great essential of fitness. If you've not been worshiping when you get into the work, you will not only be useless yourself, but a tremendous hindrance to those associated with you. So let's look at the text tonight. 
Would you, with me, look at the life and the ministry of King Solomon? Turn your Bibles now, if you would, to 1 Kings. 1 Kings, very quickly. There are two different accounts of his life and reign. One is in 2 Chronicles and the other is here in 1 Kings. And I want to begin reading in chapter 2, 1 Kings 2. But before I do, let me give you an overview of his ministry as king over Israel. You take the 40 years that he served. The first four years were characterized by blessing. He walked with God. He was sensitive to the Lord. He worshipped Jehovah. He sought to walk in the fear of the Lord. And God blessed him abundantly. Then the next 20 years are characterized by building. He's building Jerusalem. He's building the walls of Jerusalem. He's building Milo, a home for his Egyptian wife. He's erecting barns and quarters for his soldiers. He's replenishing cities. His whole life is consumed in building. And in the last 16 years of his life, uh, as king over, over Israel, are characterized by barrenness. He becomes an idol worshiper. He multiplies to himself wives, which was prohibited. 700 to be exact. 300 concubines. And God told him, don't take to yourself these strange women. For they will turn away your heart after other gods. But yet the Bible says that he clave unto these in love. Now, first of all, let's look at the first four years approximately a blessing. God not only ministered to this man physically, but also spiritually. First of all, he can entrust Solomon with the kingdom. In 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 12, it says, So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. The old King James says, established greatly. What does that mean? Well, everyone recognized that Solomon was God's appointee to reign in David's stead. But furthermore, Solomon had the endorsement of his own father, King David, because David knew that God had appointed Solomon to be the next king. No wonder the Spirit of God says his kingdom was established greatly. God could entrust him with that. He's walking with God. Furthermore, he has keen discernment. Even before God blessed him with a, with a spirit of wisdom, he had great ability to ascertain 
the motives and and the ways behind people's actions. The example is in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. There you find Solomon discerns Ananias' scheme in requesting Abishag to be his wife. What does the man do, his brother? He goes to Solomon's mother Bathsheba and says, Could I make a small request? Would you go on, by, on my behalf to the king and ask him if Abishai could be my wife, this concubine? Bathsheba saw no harm in that whatsoever. But Solomon did. When the request was made, his response was, As for Ananijah, the kingdom also? Don't you know that this is the property of the king? If I relinquish ownership of this woman before the eyes of the people, it will be a sign of royalty. And it will give the people the impression that a mistake has been made. Of course, it cost his brother his life because of his deceitful deed. He had keen discernment. Furthermore, in 1 Kings 3 and verse 1, another blessing of God is his reign was characterized by peace in these first few years. You'll notice it says there in chapter 3 verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. But it wasn't just Pharaoh that he established this working relationship, this affinity with. It's interesting that all of a sudden what formerly were the enemies of his father, David, now are becoming the friends of Solomon. No wonder he would pin those words in Proverbs 16 and verse 7. That when a man's ways please the Lord, God will cause even his enemies to be at peace with him. God bless the man. Furthermore, look at chapter 3 and verse 12. He was given supernatural wisdom. A gift of divine wisdom. It says there in verse 12, Lo, God says, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart. An understanding heart. And then also God bestows fame upon the man. He exalts him in the presence of these nations. 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 31. His fame was in all nations round about. And then look at his ability to compose. In 1 Kings 4 verse 32. It says that he spoke 3,000 proverbs And his songs were a thousand and five. What I want to just underscore here in passing, friend, is in these years of blessing, Solomon walked with God, and God just bestowed gift after gift upon this man. But there came a day when he began began to get busy. He started to build. The next 20 years are characterized by busyness or building. 
You'll notice in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 37. Don't miss this. If you would, turn there with me for a moment. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 37. The Bible says, this is the ESV. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month Abul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished, referring to the temple of the Lord. It was finished in all its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Now it's interesting, the Hebrew, as you move from chapter 6 to chapter 7, there's a pronounced transition that takes place. Some English translations begin the verse or the chapter with the conjunction, but, which marked that something is happening in contrast to what has occurred. The Bible says Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but it takes him seven years to build the temple of the Lord and takes him almost twice as long to build his own house. Here's the picture in my mind. He stands there after he has finished this masterpiece of architectural design, the temple of the Lord. And as he looks upon this this structure, he begins to imagine his heart. If I can build that specimen, that beauty in seven years for my God, imagine what I can build for myself. And he undertakes a building project that takes him almost twice as long to complete. And dear brothers and sisters, listen to me. It cost him dearly. You have no idea the toll that it took on his life, spiritually and morally. We get a perspective of his pursuit to build. And interestingly, you notice that it took him twice as long to build his own house than it did the house of the Lord. Now here's what happened. Turn with me to chapter 9 now. There are three things that you see in his life that you should expect to see in your life. Are you with me now? When you get too busy for God. When you're so overextended. That all of your time and days are filled with agendas. That you feel like there are certain things that I must do. That I must accommodate. And all of a sudden you become so tired physically and emotionally. If you pick up your Bible at all to shut yourself up alone with God, you're so dull, you get very little out of your devotional time. And if that continues, friend, you'll begin to neglect it altogether. Here are three things that you'll see in your life as you see in Solomon's life when you become overextended and are too busy for God. Number one, his commitment 
to others became cold and meaningless. Look with me, if you would, in 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse number 10. At the end of 20 years, now he's in the throes, he's right in the midst of all this building and business. In which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. The king Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. You say, well, Brother Don, that contradicts what you just said. You said, when we get too busy for God, it reflects itself in our relationship with others. That Solomon became cold and his relationship with others became meaningless. But it says here that he gives Hiram 20 cities. But notice the quality of cities that they were. It says in verse number 12. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they called the land, they call them the land of Kabul unto this day. Brothers and sisters, listen. It's interesting, but the word Kabul in the, in the Hebrew means worthless, filthy. It was nothing more than a rubbish heap. And that's the way our flesh operates at times. If we do anything for people at all, if we're too busy for God, we do something for them that really doesn't cost us anything. We make an open show of the flesh. Well, I want them to know that I care that they might respect me more. But deep down inside, there's no sacrifice involved. There's no significant investment. We just go through the motions of just helping or doing something, but there's no sacrifice behind it. Years ago, the early years of our marriage, we were able to get our nose above water pay our bills, didn't have much, but we began to save a little. We had about $1,000 in our savings account. That was our savings. God began to speak to my heart because during that fall, that year, as I traveled from church to church, Cindy and I were made privy to people in great need couple of pastors and other people that had great needs. God began to deal with my heart and I went to Cindy. I said, you know, I really believe maybe God would just have us to, to deplete our account and just help these people. My wife, she's always been the liberal one of the family. I, she loves to give. And she looked at me. She said, Don, let's go for it. So I went down to the bank and I drew that money out. And I wrote eight or nine checks to different people that we met, that we knew, that were in great need. I felt good about myself, you know. Look what I've done. 
But in the back of my mind, there was a, a carnal thought that I could have repos on. Because I knew Christmas was coming on, and we normally would get a lot of Christmas cards from people across the country, and many times there were some nice checks in those Christmas cards. So I'm thinking, even though we've given this away, this year God's going to knock the bottom of heaven out because look what I've done. Well, after Thanksgiving, a few cards come in. I open them up. I look at the front of the card. I read the greeting. I open it up. I read what's there. Then I look for the check. No check. First full week of December, more cards are coming. I'm anxious now. I open the envelope. I, I immediately open the card. I disregard the greeting on the front of the card. I just open the card and I read and see who it's from. And then I'm looking for the check. There's no check. We get closer to Christmas. More cards are coming in. Long story short, friend, by Christmas time, of all the cards we received that Christmas, we only received two checks and both of them were for $10. I'm struggling. And I get bitter toward God. So disappointed. You fail me. What? What? Don't you remember what I just did, Lord? The investment I made, how I gave. And I tell you, friend, I was cut to the core. I battled, I struggled in that season of my life. And then I began to recognize as I thought on Solomon, I began to consider other stories in church history that I didn't invest for the glory of God. I invested to get something from God. And I also recognized that my relationship with those people, what I had done was more of a front than it was with sincerity doing it to the glory of God. This is what happens. The Bible tells us that whoso hath this world's good and, and sees his brother in need and as the King James says, shuts up his vows of compassion or Cuts off the lifeline of compassion. How dwells the love of God in that person? His commitment, Solomon, to others became cold and meaningless. He does something for Hiram, but he does something for him. It doesn't cost him anything. Quickly, number two, you'll notice something else. When you get too busy for God, for God, you become more occupied and consumed with things. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 15 through 19. 1 Kings 9, verse 15 through 19. The Bible says this is an account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord in his own house. He's building these things. There's Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and, and Gezer. In verse 17, so Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Bethhorim. He continues to build and Baalath and Tanmor in verse 18 in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. Watch this now. And all the store of cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. I tell you, brothers and sisters, he's addicted to building, accumulating. And that's what happens in our life. When we fall out of touch with the Lord because we 
are too busy, we find ourselves having cultivated many times inadvertently an insatiable appetite for more to accumulate more wealth and more materialistic items. And so it was with him. Vance Havner says, there is nothing that crowds out the quiet hour any more than the very work that draws its strength from the quiet hour. And I don't know if you've ever been to Leonard Ravenhill's grave here in Texas, a couple hours away. Do you remember the statement there underneath his name, the day of his death and birth, are the things that you're living for worth Christ dying for? We get so busy for God, and a sure tell sign of it is we want more and more and more. And we're not content with such things as we have. Once again, I cite the words of our dear brother, the Apostle John. Remember in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He didn't say that the Father wasn't in you. He didn't say that, that the Son wasn't in you. He said the love of the Father is not in you. We love that little chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face. And it's true, friend. The guy that wrote that is speaking out of reality. There's a spiritual phenomenon that occurs. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But you know what I'm afraid of? And I bear witness to this testimony. We can get so focused on the things of this world that it's his faith face that grows strangely dim. Thirdly, another thing you should expect to see when you're too busy for God, as you see in Solomon, you find that his personal devotional walk decreases. His worship dissipates. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 25. Chapter 9, verse 25. Before you read that with me, let me remind you of something. When you go back into those years of blessing when Solomon walked with his God because he wasn't too busy, Jehovah was his priority. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4, in the context of those blessed years, that in Gibeon alone, Solomon offered a thousand sacrifices of worship. Now, at that time, he had only been king three years. And in Gibeon alone, he offers these sacrifices of worship, a thousand of them. You know what that translates out to? Approximately one act or one sacrifice of worship a day just in Gibeon. You see where his priority is. But now that he's so overextended, And victimized by busyness, notice how often he worships his God now. 1 Kings 9, verse 25. Three times a year, 
Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. He's got no excuse now. He's got a a worship center just off his back porch in the temple. But does he take advantage of it? No, he's too busy. Thousand sacrifices of worship. And just in Gibeon, the first three years of his ministry as king. And now, in chapter 9, verse 25, three times in a year. I've been blessed by reading great biographies and I've drawn in some measure content that's been tremendously encouraging from Hudson Taylor's life. I don't know if you heard this story or not. Toward the end of his life, he was an old man. His body racked with pain. He was accompanied by his son and daughter-in-law across inland China. The only source of transportation over that Rugged terrain was a springless cart. So they would go from village to village for him to see people that he had influenced for Christ or people that he had led to Christ. And Hudson Taylor's daughter gave this account. As they traveled, they tried to get to the village because they would have a place, just one place, one room that all the travelers would lodge in together. And she said, we would try to get there early enough that day to secure a corner in the room. Because of my father-in-law's practice of worship. She said, every morning, sometimes four o'clock, sometimes five o'clock, no later than six o'clock, You could hear the scratch of the match. Hudson Taylor would light a lantern. And there with an open Bible, he would worship his God. And the caption of that story was this, that before the sun ever arose on China, Hudson Taylor was worshiping his God. The thing I want you to see as I close is long before Solomon ever compromised the commandments of the Lord, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not commit adultery. He compromised his communion with God on the altar of business. And dear brothers and sisters, I say this to you tonight, listen carefully. Don't think it can't happen to you. It's a slow downward spiral. Here's how it translates. You start substituting good things for the best thing, and that is communion with God. Good things take precedence over the best thing. If you start making those concessions and compromises, it won't be long before you Start substituting evil things for that which is good.
I just touch on the third point, and that is the years of barrenness. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1, look at that with me. This is a tragic tale. Now Solomon, King Solomon, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Look at verse 4. But when Solomon was old, his wives, sure enough, God had told him that they would turn away his heart, and they did. They turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David's father. And here's the solemn outcome. Verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And did not wholly follow the Lord as did David his father. His father had done. Think about it. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his father. Here's what I'm hearing today. I told your pastor. There are some men, laymen, and women, and there are some ministers or ministers' wives that I never thought in my wildest imagination would apostatize from the gospel, leave the faith completely, and renounce Christ. I never thought it would happen. I said, Not them, Lord, not that man. The last decade, it's made for good preaching to curse the charismatics. After all, some of their big-name boys bit the dust spiritually because of immorality. But I'm here to tell you something, brothers and sisters. We've got just as many people in sound evangelical churches, even Reformed churches, that are falling away from the faith. And you want to know why? You mark my word. The reason happens is they get too busy for God. They've built a kingdom and now they've got to accommodate it. George Mueller says this, let none expect to gain mastery over his inner corruption in any degree without going in his weakness again and again to the Lord for strength. Nor will prayer with other people even or conversing with the brethren make up for secret communion with God. Yes, bravo. We need to be committed to the body of Christ. We need to be committed to our family, friend. But even those noble things are no substitute for communion with Christ. So Solomon's life ended in inexpressible regret. And I want you to see this. This is what we'll close with. Ecclesiastes chapter number 2. Look at this with me real quickly. Please don't miss this. What a sobering import. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look at his 
transparency again. Look at his confession. He says in verse 4, Ecclesiastes 2 verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and, and planted in them all kind of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. But please watch this sad commentary. Verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered, I contemplated in light of eternity is the idea there. All that my hands had done and the toll that I had expended in doing it. And behold, in light of eternity, all was vanity and striving against the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You know what one commentator said? The reason there was nothing gained under the sun There was no eternal profit under the sun is because his focus was under the sun, not above the sun. He became too busy for his God. I picked up a religious periodical many, many years ago now. I didn't have time to read most of the content, but I'd always read the editorial in the back. It was written by a very reputable preacher. It had a large church in the United States. One day when I picked up this magazine and I thumbed to that editorial, the man wrote these words. He said, when I was 30 years of age, the greatest desire of my life was to build a big church. He said, I wanted to flourish in, in nickels and noses and Buildings, budgets, and baptisms. And he said, God gave me that. And then he said, when I turned 40 years of age, he said, the greatest passion of my life is to be a great preacher. And he was in big demand. He spoke in some of the largest churches across this country. A frequent conference speaker. Very gifted orator. He said, God gave me that. But he said, now that I'm 50 years of age, the greatest desire of my life is to know God, to enjoy God, and to glorify him forever. That was six months before his church called him on the carpet for calling a pornographic hotline. 
And when they got even closer, they found out he was involved in adultery with a woman in the church. The result, he lost his ministry. He lost his marriage. His children turned against him. He was in a pitiful state. And only a short time later, he committed suicide. You see, what he had written before showed the revelation of God in his heart. What if in the early days of his ministry as a young preacher boy, going to seminary, coming out of seminary and working with seasoned pastors, what if those men around him would have said, Brother, being a great preacher, that's not what your goal ought to be. Brother, listen, building a big church, let God add to the church, but don't let that consume you. Don't let that be your focus. What if his peers around him, his preacher friends, would have said, Brother, this should be the chief and only priority of your life is to know your God, to enjoy Him, and to glorify Him forever. You know what I'm convinced of? He'd still be in the ministry today. And I'm equally convinced that there are men and women today that have fallen away from the faith that I've known in my life that I still love greatly. But when you sit down and either inquire about them or inquire from them where it all started, once again, they got too busy for God and neglected their time with Christ. And it can happen to you. Even people who are retired. Let's pray together. Now, Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, for these great stories, these, these true accounts that you have set up as beacons of warning for us. Father, may it not be said of us that was said of Solomon. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. They made me the keeper of, of all these things and these pursuits and agendas, demanding my time, but my own time alone with my God have I not kept. <clears throat> Father, I pray in Jesus' name. May we not allow anything to crowd out our time with Christ. May this be the priority of our day every day. Is to spend time with this Savior. That is not only kind and gracious and loving to us and cares for our soul. But also by his spirit is able to fortify us against the influences of this present evil world that would seek to draw us aside, thwart our perseverance, and cause us to apostatize from the gospel. Please, O oh God, save us from ourselves. Save us from the world. May we make this time with Christ a priority. Every day for your glory.
Amen.